Okay, so we're in uh, the last chapter of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in the first few verses, first five verses actually. And again, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, just thinking about how, I don't know how many commentaries have been written on the Sermon on the Mount in 2,000 years. I've been a bunch, a bunch of them. Just one sermon that Jesus spoke, and, and evidently this was, I used to have a friend that was an evangelist, a cowboy evangelist, his name was Glenn Smith. He's, he's gone on to be with Jesus now. And uh, I remember one of the first times I was with him and had him come speak in a town when I was pastoring, and we were praying about the meetings we are going to have, and, and uh, so I was just kind of getting to know him. And I, I said, uh, Glenn, what's it like being an evangelist? He said, well, he said, I got six good sermons and a fast car. <laughs> and I thought, hey, that's pretty good. And so Jesus definitely had more sermons than six probably, but, but when you read the so synoptics, especially even reading the Gospel of John, you find out that he wasn't embarrassed about using the same material over and over because it was truth and truth transforms. And so when we look at Matthew, this is the most complete sermon of Jesus we have, the, the longest, and still it's pretty short. You can read through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and I don't know, I hadn't, hadn't timed that exactly. I've timed a lot of things reading of the Bible, but probably eight minutes maybe, get through there. Uh, and yet, it just never quits working on our hearts, does it? It never quits being viable and speaking to our situation in life. It never, uh, never ceases to convict and to transform. And so, when we come to this one, this is really one of the more convicting, I think, this little passage is maybe more convicting than a lot of the others, although all of them really kind of hammer home truth into our heart. And so, as we look at this, we need to remember the context in which it's spoken, because lots of times people that aren't believers, you know, they're kind of philosophic, or maybe they've read the Sermon on the Mount, or heard some quotes from it, or whatever, they said, oh, that's all we need, we just need that, we just need that principle, that, you know, that, uh, that kind of a basis for civilization, but nobody's going to live this way, that's not been granted new life in Christ Jesus, it's impossible, it's hard enough when you've got new life in Jesus to live according to what this sermon says. In fact, it's a, it's a learning curve all the days of our life, isn't it? To judge not, lest you be judged. Anybody here have trouble judging? Anybody, you know, that's difficult, isn't it? To keep ourselves from, from passing judgment. In fact, we're all, we're all prejudiced, aren't we? And so we don't have the freedom to judge. We don't have that prerogative. But nevertheless, we tend to do that, don't we? We tend to pass judgments. And it's a, it's a dangerous thing, first of all, because the way that we judge... That's going to come back to us. And it's not just karma. It's the reality of God who is just returning to us what we've sown. And so we don't want to be judgmental. But we are judgmental. That's why Jesus has to speak to us about don't do it. So I want to read some things in, in the Gospel of John before we get to this. And you'll see how thoroughly uh, ingrained in Scripture this idea of judgment is. This is John chapter 3. And here's the most famous verse in the Bible, verse 16. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So Jesus doesn't come to condemn the world, but those who don't believe are already 
judged. They're already condemned. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? All the people that have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ are under the wrath, they're under the condemnation of God. But Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. The world can only be saved. Anyone in the world can only be saved through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Everyone who doesn't have the true knowledge of Jesus Christ is condemned by God already. Wow, that's weighty, isn't it? That is heavy. And so here we are, flung out as those who have the character of the Beatitudes into the world, into the harvest, because the labors are so few, and the harvest is so great, and people need to hear. Jesus says, uh, i got to send you guys out two by two because I'm never going to get to all the villages. I'll never get everywhere. I'm physically limited. So he sends out 12, then he sends out 70. And then the next generation, he sends out thousands. And the generation after that, millions. And he keeps sending out into every generation people to proclaim the mercy that's found in Christ Jesus because he didn't come to condemn the world, but the world loves darkness. Isn't that something? Have you ever had a a pet sin? Something that you love so much that you just can't give it up? We love darkness, don't we? There's something something about darkness we like, but that darkness kills, doesn't it? This is a little bit off topic, but it's really a great story. (laughs) C.H. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, he was was preaching about the, I think it's probably like, the sinfulness of sin, some you know, some title like that, and he talks about. He uses this picture, this picture, an example. He says, "What if you had this beautiful newborn baby, and you and your spouse had been hoping for years to have this newborn baby, and and so you get this baby, you've got the nursery all set up, and you put the baby in its little crib, and and you check on it every once in a while. One morning you come in, and this huge snake is in the crib." And it swallowed your baby. And you take that snake in and begin to treat it very nicely and gently and love on it. He said you wouldn't do that. He said that's the nature of sin is to devour. We don't love sin. We're not to love sin, but sometimes we entertain things that are very destructive. And certainly judging is one of those things. It becomes very destructive. I told you it didn't have much to do with this lesson. But. <laughs> so Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world, but the world might have life through him. So you come to, I'm not going to read this one, but you're all familiar with the, the story in, in John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus just asked the crowd, he says, okay, any of you all out there without any sin? And there weren't any volunteers. And he said, you can cast the first stone at this woman. And so this lady was, you can, I can't really imagine, we can try to imagine how ashamed she must have been to be caught in the sin, having grown up, you know, around the temple grounds, because Jesus is teaching on the temple grounds. This lady was probably around the temple grounds, saw the sacrifice, saw the smoke going up all the time. She might have been a, a child of the Sabbath school, you know. She might have grown up in Sabbath school. But somehow her life made a turn into darkness, and she lived there so long that, that it was easy to plan and to catch her in the act of adultery. And when she's brought in there, you know, she, she would have been thinking because she probably knew about Moses, you know. She deserved to be stoned, and her head was hung, and she thought, man, I'm hung, you know. And when Jesus says that, and these guys begin to drop their rocks one at a time and walk away, he says, woman, where are those who would judge you? And she has to finally looks up and says, well, I don't see anybody. He said, neither do I condemn you. Because the Son of Man came unto the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world. The world might be saved. Isn't that an amazing story? Jesus had every right to pass judgment. I mean, he is God, isn't he? And he is righteous, and he is true, and he's always just. And he could have, he could have said, have at her, justly. And really, the reality is that he could say the same thing about me and you right now today. I don't know how long you've known Jesus. I've known Jesus since 1973. But right now today, Jesus would be just to say, have at him, take him out. But he doesn't. Day after day, he says, neither do I condemn you. Isn't that an amazing thing, that his mercies are new every morning? He has every right, all the authority to judge, and yet we're living in this age of mercy where he continues to send out labors to call people into the light, into salvation, into deliverance. This is an amazing thing. And so he gives us this picture of this time in his ministry where he says, neither do I condemn you. But we need to take hold of that, don't we? Because that's really going to transform us when we see that in terms of how we begin to perceive other people. Be nice if it just happened in one fell swoop. But that that hasn't happened for me. But but I am more gentle, not only with myself, but then with those around me as I see that and understand that and let that soak deeper into me. So we come now to because because God's just, isn't he? Absolutely holy. When he when he made all things, when he was in eternity with the Son and with the Holy Spirit, there was no darkness there, no sin there. And then when he created, somehow in, this, in a mysterious way, we got sin in the world. And everything broke, didn't it? Everything broke. And so you and I, according to Reformed doctrine, we are totally depraved. How does that make you feel? Totally depraved. And when we stop and think about it, we go, Amen right? Totally depraved. Now, Calvin didn't say that, but he didn't in so many words, but he did preach that way, that there is no hope without the grace and the mercy of God, that, that total depravity just means that in every way we're broken. We're broken emotionally. We're broken intellectually. Now, this is a good example. This science is a good example of being broken in it. You know, it's like you think of all the, the information you've had over the last 50 years about what's good for you to eat. Remember when eggs were bad for you? Now you better have three of those suckers a week. Remember from 1960 on, red meat, don't eat that stuff. It's, it's a killer. And now have three portions of red meat every week. It's good for you. Yeah. And, and, then, and then they come at us and they say, science, we have the answer. Trust us. Right? Because we, we can't think straight. We are, we're broken intellectually. And even though we make progress, you know, it's always a seesaw thing. Even in science. You know, I've mentioned this before, but Einstein got it wrong. And so they're having to correct his, I mean, he got it right enough that it works in the practical world, but he got it wrong. So science is not to be trusted. Why? Because sin has broken our ability to think right. We can't think right. Even when we go to Harvard and get a Ph.D. in astrophysics, how would you like to do that? But we still can't think right. Or our, our affections. You know, our affections drift. Howard mentioned this in passing this morning about uh, uh, William Cowper's song, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It. You know, our affections are prone to shift, aren't they, from one day to the next. And so everything's broken. Our will, our ability to choose. You know, we're called to choose this day whom we'll serve. Every day we're called to choose that way. And some days we do a pretty good job of it. 
But other days, we, we man, this is hard to do this. Sometimes I don't do it even. You know, so all these ways were broken. All of creation is broken. We're totally depraved. And we have to have mercy. And if God wanted to judge us, he would have every right to judge us. He would be, with, he would be within the bounds of righteousness because the God of this earth is also the judge of all the world. And he will do justly. He will do justly. And in the end, everything will be set straight. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And it will be absolutely just, and we're going to love it. We're going to love it. Everything's set right. We long for it. But our, since our longings are corrupt, lots of times we long for the wrong thing, you know, or, or don't long for it the way that we should. So when we come to chapter 12 of John, one of these days I'll get over in Matthew. This is in uh, verse... 44. We'll look at verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Isn't that an amazing thing? The Word of God not only judges at the last day, but even now it's judging, isn't it? It's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit. And before God, we're all open and laid bare. Can you imagine that sacrifice on the, the high sacrifice day, you know, or any sacrifice on the Temple Mount when that animal's cut open and all the innards are exposed? That's what God's Word does to us. It just exposes us, doesn't it? And it judges... And as we receive it, it it judges in a sense of purifying. But if we don't receive it, we're stacking up for ourselves wrath and judgment on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that day, Jesus said, I didn't come to judge, but this will be the judge. God's word will be the separating factor on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll not only only be judgment of the sheep and the lambs, but there will be the judgment seat of Christ. When we all who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and ended up in the flock of lambs, we'll give an account for everything we've done in this flesh. Wow. That's weighty, isn't it? That is weighty right there. I think that has something to do with what the Bible calls the fear of God, who is a consuming fire and who will burn the wood, hay, and the stubble on that day, refining those things that are good that we've done with the right motivation for the glory of God. So everybody will have a little smoke coming off of them probably, right? Some more than others. But if, we, if we've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we've not been condemned. If we've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't even get into that, what you could call a secondary. It's not really a secondary judgment, but into the, into the judgment of our works. But we'll all be judged because God will have this perfect setting as we start into eternity and his kingdom fully come. So that's a great thing for us to think. So when we read the Word of God, since none of us are perfect, there's always going to be this judgment in there. There's always going to be conviction. There's always going to be a call to change. There's always going to be a call to cry out for mercy. And as we receive more mercy, we begin to have mercy on the people around us, even the ones with tattoos and have these big holes in their ears. With, you know, Even those people. Because Jesus didn't come to judge any of those people. 
He came that they might hear, and hearing they might believe, and believing they might be saved. He didn't come to judge anybody, but his word will. And so we have this, this truth that the Bible is the standard, isn't it? It is the standard. But it has to be wielded rightly with the right motivation, doesn't it? It has to be wielded in love, just as Jesus wielded it. Not, not in vengeance, that's God's. That's not ours. So I've probably gone through everything I want to tell you. And here, we've got 20 minutes to go. So here's the command. Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Again, this is written to, to kingdom citizens, but Jesus certainly did not mean by that that we're not to ever make any judgments. The world cannot function without judgments, can it? It just can't function. It can't function. It's like I have to discern whether or not to go through that light when it's red. No, I, I don't go through that light. I've made a judgment call, and I know that I will be judged if I keep doing that kind of activity. The world works through judgments. And I wrote it when John was the editor of the newspaper years ago. I think it was like 2003. I'd just come back from a summer at seminary, and I'd had to present this. I had to present this paper before the class on how I would respond if I had a a gay couple come to me and want to be married in the church. And so I used natural law, I used church law, and I used the Bible as the basis for my answer. And having been thinking about that for a few weeks, I wrote a letter to the editor about. Uh, discrimination is not a bad thing and i talked about the discrimination that's good like we just we discriminate we judge between drinking gutter water or water that's purified out of the faucet don't we and we know not to drink the gutter water we're not going to do that we make a judgment call no i'm not going to do that so we're always making judgments at some level aren't we we have to do that society makes judgments of what is good behavior and what's bad behavior and the more society says well we can't really judge or you know sometimes they say you can't legislate morality really you can't legislate morality then why do we have any laws we're trying to legislate morality aren't we we're constantly trying to do that and when we quit legislating morality we get what we've got now and it's getting worse Here's an interesting thing. We don't discriminate. I mean, we want freedom of expression. So pornographers, this is just an example, pornographers can get all their stuff in the stores they want. They can put it all over the Internet. They can put it in magazines, wherever. And then the women who dress provocatively say, oh, why are we being treated this way? Well, duh. You're starring in movies that show it all the time. This stuff's coming down the pike. We made a bad judgment. We, we thought that we're not supposed to make judgments. The government says, oh, we can't judge, we can't censor. The government has to censor. But it doesn't. And when it doesn't, society begins to degrade. The family begins to fall apart. And the adversary gets the upper hand. And then when you speak truth into that environment, people shout you down. Get out of here. You know, when Billy Graham died here a few weeks ago, there were some, I saw an article that, I'd seen articles before about, you know, what a terrible guy he was. But I saw a couple of articles, oh, you got to be kidding me, Billy Graham's a bad guy. But then these other people began to compare Franklin to his dad. And definitely, they're two different people, two different presentations. But bless God for Franklin Graham. Give us more men like Franklin Graham that will speak the truth and from the platform that's given to him. And take all the flack that comes their way and refuse to back down. Because it's truth that enables the light to be seen. And then people can come to the light. It's not compromise. So 
So sometimes we got to be a Franklin Graham. It's not a very comfortable place to be, you know. But the church is a, not only a city set on a hill, which is part of the sermon, you know, that people can see God in his truth, but it's the pillar and the support of the truth, Paul says. So the church doesn't have, an, it doesn't have a choice whether or not it can speak truth. It's called to speak truth. It's called to pervade the truth into culture. It has to do it in love. It has to do it in love. It ha- we have to do it in love. But we have to speak the truth because nobody will ever be rescued. Nobody will ever come out from under judgment unless they hear the truth. They've got to hear the truth. So we're the purveyors of that truth. So we have this, the Bible as this. So Jesus is not saying don't judge. He's saying let my word judge. And he's saying also that, that we have to discern later. Just later on in this chapter it says by their fruit you're going to know these apostles. So we're making discernments always. Is this guy really? of God, we have to see the fruit, don't we? Not just the power, not just the charisma of that person, but where is that going to lead us? Where does that go? Does that bring us to glorify God, to fear him, to love him, to yield to him, to obey him? Or does it make me the pinnacle? You know, is it somehow, you know, speaking to me in the wrong way? So we're, we're constantly making these judgment calls. Don't, don't despise prophecy, but judge everything, weigh things, you know? That's an example that Paul gives. And so we have these responsibilities to discern constantly. We have to make these judgment calls all the time, not just in practical affairs of life, but in in the spiritual realm in which we move as citizens of the kingdom. So Paul gives us examples in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6. Chapter 5, I think, is the the guy that's, uh, you know, got an illicit relationship with his mother-in-law and and uh, Paul says, throw the guy out of the church. Get him out of here. I turn him over. You know, you got to get him out of here. Why? So the, the, the reformers uh, upon whom we build our church organization for the last 500 years, they said there are three things necessary for the church to be evident, to be noticed, to be known in a society. One is the preaching of the word. One is the administration of the sacraments. And the third is the exercise of church discipline. We're not very good at exercising discipline, are we? And families are, because of Dr. Spock, you know, are, are, and, and that philosophy, are not very good at disciplining children. And schools, no, we don't discipline children. You read the, the stories about the, the latest shooting in Florida. And that school district had decided they would no longer report as disciplinary problems all these things that were going on in order to raise the, the, the moral altitude of assessment of their school districts. So all of these people that were doing all these terrible things, oh, we don't report that anymore. That's why we're doing so good. you know. And so whenever discipline is pushed aside, bad things happen. And discipline can only be based on truth. It can only be based in What's true, and the, the Bible is true. The Bible is dogmatic, isn't it, about things? But again, it's always flavored in the love of God and people that are in the kingdom that have submitted themselves under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, under, and understand they're totally depraved. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their brokenness, for they shall be comforted. Those people that have encountered God that way, they begin to be fulfilled because they hunger and thirst for righteousness and they're being satisfied 
Okay? People outside of that, they're still looking for something, and, and uh, we're sent out to minister to them. And God applies judgment to those that continue to cling to darkness. So the cross, where judgment and mercy meet, that's always a, an interesting thing to meditate on, isn't it? The cross of Jesus Christ, where God is shown to be perfectly just and justifier. Because Jesus went to the cross to justify us, to take our penalty so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Wow. That, that never gets old, does it? That never gets old. That's, that's new every day that we are before God freely as children with boldness because we come in Christ Jesus. Everything that, that he has done, everything that he accomplished, he did for us. He didn't need to accomplish it for himself. He was no sinner. He didn't need to die for a debt that was owed, but he died for our debt. So we, we come before God, and that judgment's been removed from us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will come into the judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, and we will have to give an account for what we've done, but there will be no condemnation. Only God can give condemnation, and he only condemns those outside of Christ, not those in Christ. So there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from sin and death. Sin is the reason for judgment, and that's, that's been taken away from us. God does not view us any longer. He views us in the clothing of the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So when we see that, that he said this mercy on us that's infinite, and we turn and look at someone that we, had, we are prejudiced against, it, it should flavor that. It should begin to change that in our heart. No, no, I can't judge them. Who would I be to pass judgment? I don't have that prerogative. Judge not lest I be judged. But look what I've escaped because of Christ Jesus. And so we begin to display that acceptance, you know, that speaking of truth and love. But we have to speak the truth in love. We have to speak that truth because that's the only way that, that people are captivated and come, come to their senses is to see the truth that in Christ God is reconciling the world to, themself, to himself. So here's what we've we got to do because with all of this, here I hadn't even read this yet, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. That's a, an interesting thing in the context of uh, Luke's is uh, uh, if you give, good measure will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, in the context of judgment. That doesn't sound very good that way, does it? So we judge somebody, God said, here, I'll give you a bunch of it. <laughs> and then he presses it down, shakes it together, and pushes it down some more. So. Anyway, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Isn't that, there's got to be some sarcasm in that, isn't there? Don't you think that Jesus is speaking there? Why? We see, you know, some little thing wrong with somebody, and in the meanwhile, we got this huge log. We're like the guy that's up on the Temple Mount that says, Oh, God, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I fast twice a week. Jesus said, Man, you got a big beam right in your eye, buddy. And you're telling this guy? How to give her this little splinter. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so we have this, this injunction. We're not to judge. And if we're going to be a help to someone, we first have to evaluate where we are. And so we're to think really constantly about 
the grace and the mercy of God that we've received in Christ Jesus, that should be, you know, preeminent in our thinking because then that transforms the way we see other people and other situations. And instead of casting a, a prejudice against someone or feeling like we have the right to condemn them in their practice, you know, or in their person really is what it comes down to. Yeah, that's what it's come down to in, in uh, our political culture, isn't it, that people are, are really condemned for their person not for their philosophy, not for what they do, but just an attack on the person personally. So we have to, to be people that, that judge ourselves. I mean, last, oh, since, since Lent started, when did Lent start? February 8th, was it? whatever it was. Ash Wednesday, whatever that was. So I, I've, been, I've been meditating on Psalm 130 and 1 Corinthians 13 just about every day. I've been thinking through those two in my morning time. And I think about and I think about Psalm one thirty says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who Lord could stand before you? Who? David? No way. How about Peter? No. Pope John Paul the Second? No, he doesn't have a chance. John Calvin? No. Who could stand before the Lord if he was to mark down iniquities? No one, O Lord. But there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared, that you might be worshipped, that you might be adored, that you might be loved, that you might be obeyed. There's forgiveness with you. Oh, God, you're tender. So then he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word do I hope. Wow, that's good, isn't it? More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. I wait for the Lord. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Man, that's good stuff. Whew. And then I read 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels will have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything I've got, if I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things, believes all things. Love never fails. And I read that definition of love, and I go, wow. And I have to remember Psalm 130. Oh, Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, no man could stand. No man could stand. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I grow irritable. It's about 8.45 every morning. And I go, oh, God, I don't want to be an irritable, irascible, opinionated man. But I'm well on my way if God doesn't show mercy, you know, because I'm totally depraved. I don't, have a, I don't have a prayer. I don't have a hope. I don't have a snowball's chance, except I'm in Christ Jesus. I'm in Christ Jesus. And who's going to separate me from that love of the intercessor? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or anything else in all creation? No, nothing can do it. Oh, Lord, that person, 
doesn't know that. They need to know that. How can I pass judgment on them when I know the debt I owe God? When I know what I owe, how can I pass judgment on them? And so I go back to God's Word, and again, His Word judges me over and over. But He's judging me unto holiness because He disciplines every person that He receives. Every child that He receives, He disciplines. He judges them. He judges the children He receives. To those outside of Him, judgment's put off, but it's coming, and it's going to be infinitely worse than anything. You know, you read in Lamentations that, I think it's uh, verse 39 of chapter 3. Reading through Lamentations, which is not a joyful read. Shouldn't be called Lamentation. But in chapter 3 and verse 39 it says, Why should any person ever complain knowing their own sins? Well, that's true, isn't it? It's, it's, like, it's like, we just have to think like Dave Ramsey, you know. Better than I deserve. I'm doing much better. I'm doing infinitely better than I deserve. Because God is just. But he has justified those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And so justified, man, that begins to change our whole heart motivation. And for me, it's a very slow curve that I learn to love other people as I've been loved. That I learn to be patient, to be kind. That I learn, you know, that I don't rejoice at wrongdoing. I don't practice cynicism. I, boy, this is a slow turn for me. But it's a turn, you know. It's turned, and it's because God's Word continues to, to come into my life. It delves to the depth of my being, and I think on it, and I say, oh, how great is the love of God. How great is the mercy that he's shown to me. And so I learned to show mercy to other people because the world's not going to know the love of Christ if the people of God judge. It won't know it. And so we have to speak the truth in love, and it has to start even in the church. In fact, that's where it's got to start, in the church. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians. He said, God's given these gifts to build one another up in the love of Christ Jesus. Speaking the truth in love. We have to speak truth in love. Not to get our way, not because we think we know better, because, you know, our knowledge will pass away, our prophecies will pass away. But faith, hope, love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. So all the truth of God has to be given in love. So we have to be constantly abiding in Jesus, don't we? Because we're not going to produce this. We're going to be judgmental. Some days we're going to slip and do it anyway. But we know, no, no. And so we're quick to come back and to confess and to mourn. And God is quick to comfort. Then we go out again and we have a fresh start because his mercies are new every morning. Judge not lest you be judged. And then when we get that big beam of pride out of our eye, that we things that gives us the ability to point the finger, you know, and to cast people. When that big beam's gone, then we can speak the truth and love. We we can help other people. We can come alongside them, like it says in Galatians, and we can help bear their burden. We can be brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, and we can tenderly, affectionately help them, so that when they stand to give presentation for themselves, they'll stand alone, but they'll be better because they've been in an environment of love. So I want to encourage you to let God's word sink into you deeply and. Just do it over and over and over and over till you see him face to face. Then we'll be glad that we did, won't we? Let's pray together. Father, again, we, uh, we look to you, God. We're, we're not sufficient, God. We're, we don't see as clearly as we'd like. We don't know as fully as we need to. But we do know this. We're not sufficient for what you've called us to. 
But, Father, you are sufficient in Christ Jesus, and that's where you've placed us, God. You've given us to draw from the wells of salvation water, God, that doesn't run dry. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are with us and in us and our counselor available to us to bring the nature of Christ more and more to bear within us and through us. God, we give ourselves to you. We pray that you'd refresh us and guide us. We need to, to deal with issues in our life that, that we remember always, God, at base, that you are merciful. God, you are compassionate. And your name will be glorified, God. We want to be a part of that. So we ask you again, God, this week to walk with us, that we might walk with you. God, as we draw near to you, you've promised to draw near to us. You said if we'd humble ourselves, God, before you, that in due time you would exalt us. So we thank you for that promise, God, as we humble ourselves beneath your mighty hand. God, we ask all these things and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.